this is Lisa Brenner. I'm the director of the Rocky Mountain MIREC, and I've never had a chance to be an interviewer yet, but today I'm super excited to talk to Dr. Kimberly Van Orden. Dr. Van Orden, or Kim, is going to talk to us today about social connection, older adults, and suicide prevention. Hi, Kim. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I love your podcast. Thanks. We're um, super happy to have you on. As we usually start with people telling us a little bit about themselves, how they got into this line of work, and for you, I'm totally curious about the older adults and the suicide prevention pieces. Sure. So I was lucky enough to do my graduate training in clinical psychology with Thomas Joyner at Florida State. And I actually ended up wanting to work with him because I fell in love with social psychology as a graduate student, as an undergraduate, and really liked thinking about our social worlds and our connections, but knew I was interested in thinking about that from um, a clinical lens and how we could use that to help solve problems like dealing with depression. So when I applied to graduate school, I wanted to work in a lab that was integrating social and clinical psych. And that's the work that Thomas was doing. And I also happened to just join the lab as he was really formulating his interpersonal theory of suicide. And I was really passionate about theory generation and thinking about the power of psychological theory. So I fell in love with that work and the the interpersonal constructs of feeling like you belong and how important that is for health and feeling like a burden. So I got to really, I just, I joined it just the right time and got to really dive into helping formulate the theory and do some of the initial tests of the theory, got to develop a measure. And so I hadn't entered graduate school focused initially on suicide prevention. I didn't really have that much of a focus yet, but then I started reading the literature and was like, really? There's one clinical trial with an RCT preventing suicide deaths? And just got fascinated by what a challenging problem it is. And so during graduate school, I I very much focused on the interpersonal theory of suicide and learning all about that. And then did my postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Rochester and did that because I wanted to learn the nuts and bolts of writing grants. I knew I wanted to eventually learn how to do clinical trials and hadn't done that yet. And was fortunate enough to have Yates Conwell as my mentor who, for those of you who don't know, Yates is a, a geriatric psychiatrist and very, very much a, a leader in the field of suicide prevention in late life. And so he just pulled me into the geriatrics domain and I fell in love. I fell in love with working with older adults clinically through psychotherapy, but also how it's such an understudied issue, um, suicide in later life. And in particular, I think the intersection with our society's kind of ageist views. So I became really passionate about wanting to, to work with suicide in later life. And now when I have mentees join me, I try to pull them over to the geriatric world as well. That's great. Some of our listeners might not know about social psychology. I think a lot of them are familiar with clinical psychology. Can you give us just a one-liner or two-liners about social psychology and how that might influence suicide prevention? Sure. So the social psychology work I did as an undergraduate was thinking about motivation and thinking about what motivates us to do what we do, and in particular, how our relationships with other people impact that. So we very much study just the basic science of human behavior and didn't really apply it to, say, working with mental disorders, but there's very much an application there. So I was very excited to take what I was learning in the lab and apply it to real world problems. That's great. You had mentioned Dr. Conwell Yates at the University of Rochester. And just to tell us a little bit about 
the group there at Rochester and in specific the Hope Lab and the work that you're doing there? Sure. So I'm part of the Center for the Study and Prevention of Suicide um, at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And that's actually something I got connected with when I was a graduate student. I think I was a third year graduate student and they had a summer research institute. And I got to go there for a week and I I fell in love with the group. And actually at that point, I decided that's where I was going to (laughs) work. But I decided that's where I was going to work. And I ended up getting to do the postdoc that I'm helping co-direct now and just stayed on. So we have a T32 postdoctoral fellowship for individuals to study suicide prevention research. And we also have a group of suicide researchers study things from public health interventions to psychotherapies. And we're also connected as with the Canandaigua VA, which is nearby, and their Center of Excellence in Suicide Prevention. So yeah. we're really lucky to have a community and some, I don't know, collegial belongingness in, in, in our group. Yeah, and I think you're bringing up some great points about training and the pathways to training. And uh, sometimes we don't talk about that enough on this podcast, but I think this idea that folks should not be uh, shy to reach out to you or others um, doing this work if they're interested in training. And I, I love your idea of saying, this is my goal. I want to work here. And I love to hear that now you're, uh, you're where you thought you'd be. So that's great. I want to switch a little bit to talking about social connection in older adults and what tell can you give us a, just a little bit of an overview in general both from physical and mental health what do we know about social connection in older adults yeah it's such an important topic social connection in general i think isn't we don't speak enough about it as a society and i know we'll get to covid but it's really changed the conversation around connectedness it's something that we're all talking about which is maybe one of the only good things to to come out of this tragedy but social connectedness in older people is really fascinating in part because it's so complicated older adults and, and something we don't again talk enough in our society is the benefits of aging so we hear a lot about the negative things and the losses and that's very true so with aging we we're dealing with physical illnesses that accompany aging, we're maybe dealing with sensory problems, maybe our vision or hearing declining. Bereavement, of course, is more common. We talk less about the benefits of aging, and there are some, and in fact, they tend to be in the social and the emotional domain. So on whole, older adults do better in terms of well-being and positive affect than younger people. They tend to be more skilled at managing their emotions, feel more connected with people, value their relationships more. We hear a lot about network size, and it, it is true that our social networks decrease as we get older. But if you read the work from Laura Karstensen and others in gerontology, uh, that's actually an active process. So they talk about the idea of pruning. And the idea there is that as we start to realize, I'm not going to live forever, I don't have unlimited time, where do I want to allocate my resources? Mm -hmm. As we get older, we just get better at putting our time and our resources where it's going to matter the most. So we may have fewer relationships, but we tend the ones we have are of higher quality and even more meaningful to us. So it's a real strength, actually, social relationships on the whole as we get older. At the same time, we know that suicide rates increase with age in most places around the world. So how do we reconcile that? At least when I work with my students, we think about the idea of a developmental trajectory and how on the whole, when older adults are doing well, they tend to do really well. But at the same time, when they start to struggle, things can really go off in the other direction. 
And so a, a theory that I think is really useful for people who might want to get into the older adults literature and think about these types of issues of connectedness is a, a theory called, I'm going to forget all the different parts of the acronym, but it's SAVVY. And it's Susan Turk Charles. And she took Laura Carstensen's work and said, but let's also think about the vulnerabilities with aging. So it's the strength and vulnerabilities. So she does this elegant job of saying, while we may have these strengths in, with aging in terms of emotion regulation and being better able to prioritize our relationship, what about the vulnerabilities, the physiological vulnerabilities that come? And so you can think about how when problems happen, older people may be especially vulnerable to struggling with them. So if you say have an event that produces belonging, will you struggle a bit more when you're older, perhaps? Yeah, think about it as both. And so really that nuanced appreciation too, that loneliness doesn't necessarily increase with age. We're really not exactly sure about the incidence and the prevalence, but we do know that when loneliness is present, it might be more problematic. And we also know that connectedness is something that remains malleable throughout the lifespan. So it's really important as a potential, I may not be able to help an older person's change their physical functioning, but can I improve their relationships? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, we want to let the listeners know too, that we're going to go back through and, and we'll probably reach out to you, uh, Kim, to get some of these links to some of these articles and these other theories so that we can put them in the show notes. Because I sure. think it's uh, super interesting to be able to think about kind of the theories that this work came from. So in terms of uh, social connection or social isolation in your clinical practice, how do you actually evaluate for that? Such an important question because it, it is such a, a broad construct. So if we think about connections, there's many different dimensions to that. And the tricky part is that some parts may matter to some people more than others. So there's a lot of different ways to think about that. There are definitely assessment measures that you can use. There are short ones. You might think about a short loneliness scale. I, I developed a scale looking at belonging and burden. There's that, of course. Clinically, I wouldn't necessarily administer that, but I might ask about those different experiences. Mm -hmm. Perhaps one thing that's interesting that's on my mind these days about that is uh, my lab is working on an intervention to help people with connectedness that's designed to be about as straightforward as it could possibly be. And we're taking the work from Pat Arian and George Alexopoulos on the work of Engage, which was um, designed to take problem-solving therapy and make yeah. it even easier to do. So yeah, so we took Engage and we're trying to make that work for connectedness. And one of the things we're finding is that just what you're bringing up, the assessment issue is key. And it's not something that people think about all the time. So not everyone has the words. So we've been doing something called the social pie of life, where uh -huh. we talk about these different parts of our social worlds and help people think about which ones would they like to grow in and which ones are they doing well in activities or family relationships and maybe contributions and things like that. Are there like constant pieces of the pie? Or are they the same for everybody or different people have different pieces of the pie? I think it's, I think some people value some more than others. Okay. But so there you, are specific kind of domains that you would think about for the pie. We do. We tend to ask, just like if you were to do a values exercise with someone, you're yeah. doing behavioral activation, you might ask about like different values, but you might also say, are we missing some or which matter most to you? Um, okay. Yeah. We, makes, think, oh, go ahead. No, that makes good sense. 
Yeah, we've been thinking too about how sometimes people will put all of their eggs in one basket. And so they're really just focused on one piece of the pie. And sometimes the task is thinking about, are there other pieces you might want to try out? So we're in particular trying this right now with individuals who are caring for a family member with dementia mm-hmm. and who are feeling lonely. And that can be a really tricky situation where someone, their best friend, their partner, their spouse now has dementia. And that was where their connections came from. Yeah. And that relationship is changing and it's really hard, but sometimes we have to think about how can we get some of those needs for connections met in new ways. That makes sense. Yeah. Trying to create some flexibility if things have been in place for a really long time. And like you said, those kind of long-standing relationships. Uh, this is just a kind of a noodly question, but is social isolation the opposite of social connection? Yeah, it's it's such a complicated construct, maybe perhaps overly. I can yeah. give you some, the way I like to think about it, I can send you a link to this as well, is connectedness being this kind of umbrella construct. Okay. Uh, and Juliana Holt-Lunstadt has a beautiful paper, it was an American psychologist, where she tries to really break down this construct and what it means. And so social connection being the broadest part. And then you might think about three domains under that. Okay. Uh, one being the structural pieces. So if you think about your network there and you imagine like a network with ties and connections, you might think about dimensions of that, like how many people are you connected to? How often do you see them? Things like that. And when that's lacking, you might call that isolation. Okay. But then there are other pieces too. So if we think about social support, so our relationships often serve functions for us. Like I might feel emotionally supported or I might have information I need, things like that. So relationships have functions. And then also there's the kind of like the psychological part of it, like how we feel about our relationships. And so that might be like loneliness or belonging or, but then the tricky part is like, where does conflict come in? Um, (laughs) You can think of those as like the emotional Piece. No, I like those three buckets and it's helpful for me to think about like the structure, the function, and then the feelings associated with it. And I think if I'm thinking about doing a clinical interview, that gives me actually three really good different ways of thinking about how to ask people about those three things. And, and specifically, like you said, I think really interesting to think about if uh, one person in your network serves a very large function, it, it may not matter that you have 20 other people or 30 other people or whatever you have, if that person's role is so big, that might um, really impact in an oversized way, I guess. Absolutely. And you're bringing up another important point too, is in thinking about how we talk to people about this. If you were use the word loneliness, you sometimes there's some stigma there. So if you're thinking about assessing things with a patient, there's some interesting papers looking at if you use the word loneliness or not, when you ask the questions, you'll get different prevalence rates. So Mm -hmm. for example, the UCLA loneliness scale intentionally doesn't have the word lonely in any of the questions. Yeah, they have a short three item version, doesn't use the word loneliness. So if you then ask people, do you feel lonely? The people who say yes are going to be a subset of this larger group of people who will say screen positive on a loneliness questionnaire. Is there a word for network? Because that feels the computerish. Is there a word for network that older adults feel more comfortable with? Is there something we should be using instead of network? I usually will just start with the term like social relationships. Okay. Okay. That That tends to make sense and also not have any sort of, I don't know, valence to it. Just yeah. 
relationships. Okay. I want to move a little bit. You were talking about the pie and, and I like the idea of using even concepts from like an act values worksheet, right? So that you could pull that in and say, what are the areas that you value? And then how would you create your pie from that or lack thereof? And that seems to me really related to this whole idea of a connection plan, because if you value things that you have things in your pie, but you're actually not doing them or you need to enhance, those seem to fit together. But can you tell us more about what a connection plan is and how do you, how might you use it in practice? Absolutely. So we came up with this, we took things that we were doing in my, my group and my clinical practice and pulled them together into what we're calling a connections plan because of the pandemic. And we realized there's this massive research to practice gap that we all know about. And so maybe it makes sense to share some of the stuff that we're learning, that we've learned from all of our participants who, who spend time with us. Maybe we should, you know, share that before it, how long it takes to write up a clinical trial. So we took the stuff that we've been doing from all of our different projects and different kind of ways of, of thinking about promoting connectedness. And how do we do that? How do we do that with our patients? And how have we been thinking about that in our research uh, studies as well? And we we're calling it a connections plan because it's designed to be somewhat similar to the process of a safety plan. So making it something that where people can say, oh, I know what a safety plan is. So it's, it's somewhat similar. And the idea being that during the pandemic and the need for physical distancing, we're all having to get a little bit more creative. So even folks who may have solid connections may be struggling with this now. So we need to be able to think outside the box and think about, I have these social needs, maybe I need to meet them in new ways. We also wanted to think about how not everyone knows all of the stuff about cognitive behavioral therapy. And sometimes we don't think about how it can be so applicable to different problems. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just wanted to take those ideas and apply them to connectedness. I, I think about this every day, all day, but that doesn't mean everyone is. Um, right. So we want to take the lessons we've learned and make it a little bit easier for people to, to dive in and apply the ideas. And the idea is that it can be used as a brief, maybe one, two session type intervention that you can apply it to different settings and populations. But some of the key features of how you might think about how a cognitive behavioral model applies to social isolation and loneliness and how you can use those same tools that many of us have in our, our tool belt and use them to address the problem of connectedness. And then you might walk away with a plan, steps that you can take when you're feeling lonely or isolated and that you can uh, use in your day-to-day -day life. So I'm going to start with the, the cog behavioral model of social connectedness and then walk it back to the connectedness plan or the connections plan. So I'm assuming that you're really then with your cognitive behavioral model, thinking about thoughts um, and feelings that go along with triggers. Maybe you could walk us through that. And I think the trigger we're talking about this in this uh, scenario is isolation. Is that yep. right? Yeah, yep, absolutely. So if we're thinking about the easy ex example right now might be the, the pandemic and need for, for physical distancing, but it could also be loneliness. And the idea is that just like we might be dealing with anxiety or depression, the same kind of model can apply. So the, the thoughts I'm having are going to impact how either stressed I am by isolation or how lonely I feel. Mm -hmm. And so that can be a really powerful thing. And then the other key part that I think we often leave off when we think about isolation, we think about, well, changing behavior. So call a friend. We might think about 
the thoughts we're having, oh, no one cares about me. We often leave off the sort of like physical sensation part. Mm -hmm. That's really important because if we think about the functions that connections serve, it's really about in part safety. If you think about the idea of belonging and how evolutionarily we've been so a social species, when we feel isolated and cut off, it's frightening. It can be mm-hmm. frightening. And mm-hmm. so our body, we might be like on alert. And so if you can do things to remind your body and yourself that you're mm-hmm. safe, mm-hmm. that can be really important. So yeah. you know, I, I live alone. And so I've really, I haven't touched another human being since March. Right. Um, So I have to find other ways to feel safe and grounded. So my cat gets hugged a lot. Um, (laughs) What's Um, your cat's name? Mitzi. Mitzi. Go Mitzi. She is hiding at the moment. Um, She does not like Zoom. I might also stand outside in the grass and with my bare feet on and feel grounded to the earth. So we can also think about connectedness as more than just spending time with other people. You can feel connected to humanity. You can feel connected to the earth, to yourself. So the physiological part of thinking about what it's like to be around other people, and that has an effect on our neurotransmitters. So can we feel safe even if we're not hugging another person? Yes. No. And I I think that's really important, particularly for those of us um, who really do get a lot of that grounding from physical connection, social connection, and trying to find different ways and build new skills. And I I think sometimes building new skills during a crisis isn't the easiest, but that we can still learn new things during this time. And as you said, we're looking for, have to look for silver linings uh, for COVID for sure. And if we can learn some new skills during this time, and clearly this is not just an older adult conversation, this is an everybody conversation, because I think this is something we're all struggling with for sure. Absolutely. And along the the topic of it being a conversation for everyone, I, I made a, a video on YouTube on how to create a connections plan. So I'm happy to share that with you as well, because it is something I think that all of us can do. We can even do for ourselves. So it could be done with a provider, but it could also be something we think about for ourselves and getting creative about what we can do to meet our connections needs. And some of it might too. I think one of the reasons I wanted to create this idea of connections plan is that it seems like it might be a simple problem, but it's, it's not. So I know those of us who work clinically, it's, it's not that easy to change. Yes. (laughs) Of emotional barriers, all kinds of things. Interesting in my work with older people, sometimes the folks who are loneliest are the ones who live in senior living communities. Uh Uh-huh there's this list of activities, what's going on, but it doesn't always happen. And there can be a lot of barriers. We have to remember just how you wouldn't just give a patient, here's the number for a therapist. And then they're going to call, of course. No, we know it's harder. There are emotional barriers. We're scared, all kinds of things. And so addressing it a little bit, thinking about what might make it hard to X, Y, Z part of a connections plan because it is easy. I, when my mom got sick and I was her caregiver for quite some time, and when I moved her up to Rochester, the place I picked was a senior living community that was connected to this kind of educational initiative for older adults and was connected to a college. And I was like, oh, she's going to love this. She's going to take all these courses. Right. And then she went and she complained about all the men who knew it all. And, <laughs> and I was like, I'm glad I spent all that time. It's just, 
is not that straightforward. Now, the happy part of that story is actually that she ended up having beautiful social connections, which I think is actually a beautiful example of aging and the, the strengths and the vulnerabilities. My father died when I was young and my mom was very isolated really didn't have friends. And then she moved, I moved her up to Rochester and she would never admit this. And she would, if she's up in heaven looking down on me, she's going to vote me off the island, but she got a boyfriend and she would never have owned that Chuck was her boyfriend, but he was 92. My mom was 72 and dinner every night and wine. And so I think it's an example of there are a lot of vulnerabilities with aging, but it can also be a really beautiful time that we often have to think outside the box about what we think is going to work doesn't always work. Yeah. And I, I, I really like the idea of a concrete exercise. I think we sometimes think that we shouldn't have to think about things like social connection. That's not going to require active thought or somehow that should, it just should be. And it really sounds like you're helping people think through steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an important point. And I think it comes up even more generally uh, with this generation of older adults, a cohort thing of being intentional about connectedness is not, it's just a foreign concept. Um, And it comes up a lot too, sometimes with people whose, say, partner was the one who managed all the social interactions. And then unfortunately, that person might have died. And wait, people aren't coming over on Friday. And it's just this very different thing. Or Sometimes another thing you'll run into is people who always did something together. Mm-hmm. So uh, a husband and wife whose interactions were always done together, and now they mm-hmm. have to think differently. Yeah, so we talked to, I think, in a really important part of the connections plan is just a bit of education about the importance of connections. So it may feel weird to be intentional, but we often forget or don't think about how feeling connected is as important for our health as eating enough food and having shelter. We just we need that to feel good and to, to live long, healthy lives. So it may feel weird, but it's good for our health. It seems like there could be important like sociocultural factors to consider when working with folks and putting these plans together. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I'm super lucky to have a mentee who is focusing her work on suicide prevention in Spanish speakers. And in Rochester, that's a really interesting situation because there aren't a ton of Spanish speakers. So if we were in down, you know, I lived in the Bronx for a while. It's very different being a primary Spanish speaker in the Bronx than it is in in Rochester, New York. And so she's helping people with this sort of linguistic isolation, but also thinking about how, if we think about that pie of life, how the values of different parts of the pie may differ across cultures and thinking about just the centrality and importance of family and many Hispanic individuals that she's worked with and things like that. So I think if we remember or keep ourselves grounded in, in values, then we can often still be able to help folks, even if we're in kind of a different cultural domain, thinking about the parts of connections that matter most to that person and will help them the most. But it's definitely such a fascinating area to think about. And of course, we're starting to think about suicide across cultures and there's mm-hmm. just so much we still have to learn. And But what, what a privilege it is to work in this area and think about all those questions. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to switch to to COVID and I think we're 
all painfully aware at this point about how the epidemic is not equitable in terms of who is suffering with it. And certainly older adults and individuals from different socioeconomic groups are suffering more than others. And just uh, interested here, just a little bit, just generally speaking, your experience working with older adults during the pandemic, and certainly it's spawned some really creative thinking on your part, but just interested in your perspectives on whole. And then let's talk a little bit after that about kind of some things we can do. I've been struck by just the diversity of responses. I think a lot of us have seen that there are some older people who are doing okay, more than we would think. Maybe in part, we think about the strengths that come along with aging in terms of perspective and and wisdom and, and coping. And then some folks, it's been interesting, the folks who were isolated before the pandemic, mm-hmm. I've heard them say, I've been dealing with this already and now everyone else is too. So just the diversity of responses has been fascinating. I guess another thing I've been struck by is and the beauty of, of us all embracing telehealth so much more. Older adults tend to prefer telehealth for mental health often. And so being able to now have that be something that they can do regularly has been an unexpected gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, any barriers that you've noticed just in terms of technology with telehealth or how any tips you can give? I think we're all struggling with technology. Any things that you can help us know that we can bring forward? Yep, it's definitely, it can be a challenge. I think I've been excited and joyful to watch folks learn telehealth and learn Zoom. So we've been doing one of our research projects. We managed to get everything virtual. So obviously, if you're researching social isolation, you don't want to stop doing that. No. (laughs) Um, At the same time, it's it's not the most straightforward thing. So we've been doing things. There's a lot of good resources on the web, and I can share some with you of how to help people learn how to set up Zoom and things like that. So I think if someone has an email address, we're going to be able to figure that out. Okay. Um, Some of the challenge can be if they don't have a webcam, things like that. But folks who say have a laptop, we've been able to walk them through it. They've been able to, on the phone, we talk them through how to set up Zoom. In one of my intervention studies where we're doing Engage, we're we're offering that via Zoom, but not everyone knows how to use Zoom. So we've actually used the Engage sessions to teach how to use Zoom. So we have one person who now midway through the psychotherapy is doing her sessions on Zoom, but has also joined other Zoom groups. I've been pleasantly surprised by how excited and willing people have been to learn. Okay. And so one thing I hear you saying is that you're actually taking some time ahead to actually help people get to the resource and really building that into the process. You're not just setting up the first meeting and saying, see you next Tuesday at three, but hey, here's some things you need to do next Tuesday before three and sending ahead resources. Yep. And it can even be if you're creating a connections plan with someone, the steps that they might put on their plan don't have to be all things that involve connection. It can be steps they would take to build those connections. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it might very well be uh, look up resources on how to learn Zoom or read that handout that Kim is emailing me or whatever it is so that they can like think about like baby steps towards maybe trying that stuff out. Okay, Kim, I know we've been talking about measurement a little bit, and I know one measure that's out there is the questionnaire for assessing the impact of the COVID pandemic on older adults. Can you tell me a little bit about that measure and how you all have been using it and how maybe others can be using it? 
Absolutely. It's such a great resource. And another group put that out during the pandemic and published it in, I believe, the journal um, the American Geriatric Society. And it's a beautiful measure that really compiles some of the most important domains, but sets them in the context of how have things changed. So it assesses a bit on social isolation. So looking at social networks, they also have a UCLA, uh, the UCLA loneliness questionnaire in there. Or we should link to that for sure so that people know where that is. Yep, and it's freely available um, on a website. You can download all the materials. Um, right. They also include some real, a really important domain about instrumental support. So do older people have the supports they need? Do they have groceries? Do they have all of those supports? So it really, you know, we were talking earlier about, and I think the beautiful phrase you used was buckets. So those three buckets of your network, your the functions like social support, and then your feelings. And so that measure really does capture those three domains. Okay, so that's great. I want to make sure folks have that. That seems like an easy thing that we could use in our practice with folks to make sure we're checking all the boxes. Um, I don't mean to mix boxes and buckets, but yes, I think that'd be good. One thing I do want to go back to, and this is maybe back to your social psychology roots. I know you've written some about this idea of social dynamics at, at a societal level and this idea of people pulling together or pulling apart. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that generally in terms of older adults, but also in terms of COVID and what do we need to know as clinicians, researchers about that? Absolutely. So yeah, thinking about when tragedies happen, if they create pulling together versus pulling apart can be such a, an important impact on, on how they have on our how they impact our psychological health. And I've been impressed by all the public health messaging talking about we're in this together and how that might try to facilitate feeling like we're, we are connected, even though we're physically apart. And as part of the connections plan, we talk about that piece as well of kind of the existential thinking about our connections with other people being really important. And that one way to maybe facilitate some of that can be through things like mindfulness meditation. Some people find that really helpful and it, it can be very useful. And mm-hmm. in particular for me, I've really, I love following the work and, and podcast as well of Tara Brock and her work for those listeners who may not know, she's a psychologist and, and focuses a lot on mindfulness and, and teaching mindfulness from a Buddhist perspective. And her podcast, she has her Dharma talks, but also guided meditations. And she has a beautiful set on how we can use mindfulness during the pandemic, mm. how we can use it to manage this fear. We're dealing with something that is frightening. So how we can manage our fear and have a different relationship with it, how we can have compassion for ourselves, and then perhaps most important, how we can feel connected to each other. So I, I, with my lab group, we wrote um, a paper that we have published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry on the Connections Plan. And we do have a link in there to some of these resources, including Tara Brock's collection of um, meditations during the pandemic. Yes, and I have that paper here, and I know that we will link to the paper, and then we'll link to the other stuff, too. So I know we've talked a lot about kind of different resources for clinicians, for researchers, um, and for humans, uh, since we're all in this together, as you said. If there are older adults that are listening to this podcast today and are struggling, and I think we all can acknowledge that there's some struggle right now that is just part of all of our lives. But if folks are struggling and they feel like they, they want to reach out or they need help, what, what would you suggest to folks? 
Yeah, such an important thing to, I think, even just recognize that's something they want to think about and make make a change in. And I don't want to be cheesy, but it's a very brave thing to do. So maybe first acknowledging, being able to sit with and realize that some, a change you want to make is, is something to be proud of and, and realize that courage. There are obviously hotlines. We, I know that we can talk about the suicide prevention lifeline, but there are also warm lines for older adults. So if you just want a friendly voice to talk to, those are available. Many area agencies on aging have resources like that. If listeners don't know, the Older Americans Act allocates federal funds to social services for the aging, and then each state has their own set network of agencies. And these are in the communities, and they provide non-medical services to older adults. So they may have care management, they may have friendly calls. So in my in my county, we have a friendly caller system that's really blossomed during the pandemic. If you, we match people up and they're able to talk. And so that can be a really good resource. Pretty much all around the country, that area association on aging will have some resources that may be able to help as well. And there's, there is actually an elder care locator website and a phone number that we can add as well. Um, right. So that there's a single resource hub that people can connect to, and then they will connect you with your local agency that can help you with those things that are available in your neighborhood. Uh That's awesome. I know um, we're coming to the end of our time today, but I also really want to thank you even more for talking to us today, because I know you have a big event coming up this week, at the end of this week. Do you want to just give us a a, a few lines, a few um, uh, just notes about what you're going to be doing at the end of this week? Absolutely. The National Institute on Mental Health is is putting together a, a workshop, a gathering of people who are passionate about work in the area of social connectedness and as a, a part of suicide prevention in later life. And it's Again, one of those silver linings of the pandemic is that everyone can attend. So in the past, this might have been something where we just had a group of people together in a room, but now everyone, the public can listen and learn and be part of the, what we're learning. So it's going to be a, people who do work in those different areas. We're going to come together and talk about what are the holes, what are we missing, what do we need to learn, and then hopefully help all of us come together to really forge the the next research agenda for what we need to figure out together. And my sense is this is going to be recorded. So even if this podcast comes out after this, that folks could then come back and listen to this, the event, the proceedings from the event that's going to happen this week. Absolutely. All right. I look forward to learning more from you at the end of the week. And this has been a total pleasure today. I want to thank you so much. Any, anything else that I missed or are we good or want to make sure you get all your last thoughts in? No, absolutely. This has been a, a real pleasure and I, I love to stay connected with folks as well. So hopefully we can also link to my lab website and I would love for people to reach out and connect with me. And if we can be as creative as possible, staying connected during this time, I'd love to hear from people. This has been terrific. I really appreciate you and the work you're doing and take care and we'll stay connected for sure. Thanks so much, Lisa. Lisa.